Now, today, uh, we are starting a new four-week sermon series looking at the life of Abraham. We're actually going to do that uh, both in the the sort of big on Sundays, but we're also doing that in connect groups in the small over the next four weeks too. We're doing it in the children's groups everywhere, looking at the life of Abraham. And basically, what we're trying to do, we're trying to take the theme of um, the church weekend away, be bold. Um, in the church weekend away, we, uh, there, were, there were all sorts of excitements. If you saw some of the photos earlier, a uh, photo coming up now of me looking very bold, I thought, um, on the church weekend. Um, uh, here's me looking a little less bold in a moment uh, when I've been splattered by cream later after the talent, talent show. But it was a great time. I hope you enjoyed it if you were there. But really what we're trying to do is take that be bold theme and apply it into all of us, not just those who were on the church weekend, but all of us as a whole church community, uh, what does it look like actually in our day-to-day lives? So we're going to be thinking, as we look at Abraham, thinking about the whole idea of bold faith. So would you grab a Bible if you're near the end of the road, just pass them along, and turn to page 13. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 is where Abraham is first introduced to us. (coughs) Timing-wise, this is about 2,000 years before Jesus, and uh, Page 13 in the Bible, we're going to read the first um, nine verses of Genesis chapter 12. It goes like this. Uh, The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I'll give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who'd appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued towards the Negev. Keep your Bible open, would you, um, page 13, and let's pray. (coughs) Uh, Lord God, we praise you and we thank you that we don't need to build an altar like Abraham did because the Lord Jesus, he was our once for all sacrifice. But tonight, we know that just like Abraham did, we need to call on you. We need to call on your name. And so, Lord, please, would you come by your spirit? Would you speak to us? Would you minister to each one of us, we pray? We call on your name right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd love you just, just for a moment... I'd love you to try and put yourself in Abraham's shoes at the very start of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 verse 1. Just try and put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Look at what God says to Abraham. He says there, verse 1, he says, go. Go, Abraham. Go from three things. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. Go. Leave everything that has ever been familiar to you. Go. Now, I think you'd agree that To obey that statement is going to require bold faith. To just up sticks and leave everything behind and just head off. And particularly, you know, no iPhone, no Skype, no FaceTime, none of that. You can't communicate. Just leave it all behind. Go. But what I'd love us to see is for each of the three things that God says to Abraham to leave, to go from. 
Straight away, he promises Abraham far more. Let me just try and show you what I mean. So first of all, he says, leave your country. That's the first thing. He says, leave your country. But by the end of verse 1, you'll see that God is saying he will show Abraham a land. So he's promised a place. He's told to leave the country, but he's going to be promised a place. Second thing he's told to leave is is the people. He says, leave your people. But then, start of verse 2, what does God promise? He says, I will make you into a great nation, a great people. So leave a people, but I'm promising you a people. Third thing he says to leave, he says, leave your father's household. That's the source of all blessing in life that Abraham would have experienced today. He says, leave your father's household, leave all that blessing. And yet, what does he promise? Verses 2 and 3, I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So I hope you see that God is promising Abraham a people, a place, and a blessing. Now, John Stott um, writes about these, um, these promises of God to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, and he says this. He says, It may truly be said that without exaggeration, that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but actually the whole of the New Testament too, are an outworking of these promises of God. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that the whole of the Bible, the whole of the Bible can be viewed through the lens of these three promises of people, place, and blessing. The whole of the Bible. But just think, first of all, just think how would Abraham have felt as God promised him all these things when actually in the present, as he was being promised these things, there were huge barriers to each three of these promises happening. You know, there's God. God says, Abraham, I promise you a people, a place, and a blessing. And here's Abraham, and he says, hang on a moment, God. What do you mean you promised me a people? What do you mean? I promised me a great nation. Have you not realized, God, me and Sarah, we've got no children? And Sarah, she is unable to conceive, and she's old. What are you doing promising me a great nation through me? How on earth is that going to happen, God? And then what about the place? God, you're promising me this place, this delightful place, Canaan, the promised land. Uh, Hang on a moment, God, just check out Canaan. There's lots of people in there. When I turn up, they're not just going to go, oh yeah, you can have this place now, Abraham, off we go. They're not going to do that. Why should I leave my nice house in Ur, start traveling around like a refugee, just going from place to place, living in tents, and expect the Canaanites just to disappear? And then what about the blessing, God? The blessing, all the blessing that I'm experiencing, it's being part of my father's household. And you're saying, just leave it all, God. And how does God reply to all that? He says, chill out, Abram. Chill out. Trust me, I will sort it. I'll sort it later. In the meantime, have faith, be bold, trust me. Now, if you were Abram, what would you have done? What would you have done if you've heard these amazing promises, but they seem ridiculous? What would you have done? Look at what Abraham does, verse 4. Very simple. Chapter 12, verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. So simple, so obedient, he just goes. He does what God says. That is bold faith. Now, as we read about the life of Abraham over these next weeks, we are going to see that these promises of God, people place blessing, we're going to see how they get fulfilled through Abraham's life. But the truth is actually that they are not completely fulfilled, even by the end of Abraham's life. Actually, they're just fulfilled a tiny weeny little bit. 
And so as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, the question that you're always asking is, when will these promises, these promises in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, when will they truly be fulfilled? When will we see God's people in God's place, experiencing God's blessing? Will we see it with Moses? No. David? No. Solomon? No. All through the Old Testament? No, no, no. And then we get to Jesus. And we discover Jesus described as the new Israel, God's people. We see Jesus described as the new temple, the place where people can meet with God. And we see Jesus described as the source of all blessing. And still, going on from Jesus, this thread of these three promises, it weaves continuously throughout the whole New Testament. These three promises, they weave into the present, into today. Where if you or I, if we are trusting in Christ, we are part of God's people. We are scattered in all sorts of different places around the world. And we are experiencing some blessings. We're experiencing forgiveness. We're experiencing the the blessing of God's Spirit. But we're not experiencing all the blessings. We, We still struggle. We still suffer. We still die. And so the three promises, they weave on into the future. Until the very end. And we read at the end of the book of Revelation of all God's people. All God's people from every tribe and nation of this world in God's place of the new heaven and the new earth experiencing all God's blessing of no more mourning or crying or pain or death. Finally, those promises totally fulfilled. As John Stott says, it may be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament too, are an outworking of these promises of God. Now, how does bold faith fit into that? Well, you may remember in the, in the New Testament, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's a, it's a famous chapter, which is a, a chapter all about faith, all about bold faith. Hebrews 11, it is, if you like, it's a roll call of all the Old Testament heroes of bold faith. And in it, there's quite a lot about Abraham. And in Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10, it is, if you like, it's a commentary on this chapter, on Genesis 12. And it's going to come up on the screen. Hebrews 11, verse 8, says this. It says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he'd later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So that there, that is the first mark of bold faith. The first mark of bold faith is is us looking up to God and his word and obeying it. See, God there, God in Genesis 12, he calls Abraham to go. God speaks those words to Abraham and Abraham, he obeyed and he went, even though he didn't know where he was going, even though it seemed bonkers. Looking up to God and his word and obeying it. That's the first mark of bold faith. Let, let me give you an example of that just to sort of in the, in the, in the today, in the here and now. Uh, some of you will know Jessie Boston, who's part of our, our church family. She, uh, many of you will have seen it. On, she was on the homepage of the BBC website a few weeks ago. And it was because one day on the 836 train from Clapham Junction to Teddington, she was sitting opposite a girl who was clearly afraid of the man that this girl was traveling with. As Jessie looked across at these two characters, she saw their ages didn't match. Their accents didn't match. And Jessie was sure that this man was trafficking this young woman. And so what did Jessie do? She didn't just sort of disappear into the world of her iPhone and look at her Instagram feed. No, she didn't do that. And she prayed. And she prayed, God, give me bold faith. And then she acted. 
She managed to help this girl to escape from the man on the train. You can read more about it on the BBC website. You see, in that moment, Jessie, she lived out bold faith. She looked up to God. That's what she did. She looked up to God and God's word. She knows his word says, love your neighbor, even your neighbor on the train carriage. She looked up to God's word and she obeyed it. She obeyed it no matter the dangers, no matter the unknowns, no matter that she might look foolish by acting on it. So that's the first mark of bold faith. And then the second mark of bold faith, here it is, as we continue in Hebrews 11, verse 9, this commentary on Genesis 12, it continues. It says this, By faith Abraham made his home in the, prom- <coughs> in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So that's the second mark of bold faith. It's looking forwards to God and his promises and trusting them. Trusting God's promises, even if they are not completely fulfilled yet. Indeed, some of those promises will not be fulfilled until eternity, that heavenly city. That means being prepared for discomfort now, in the here and now. Living in tents. That means being prepared for being a stranger now, feeling like we don't fit in now, like a foreigner now in this world. It means being prepared for that now because we look forward to the promise of eternity. And so the simple question for you and I is, is this us? Is it you? Is it me? As individuals, as a church, are we people of bold faith, people who are looking up to God and his word and obeying it and looking forward to God and his promises and trusting them? Is that you? Because it certainly was Abraham. Now, if the reading that I just read, Genesis 12, 1 to 9, if that was the end of the story... We could just close our Bibles and go, wow, isn't Abraham amazing? He is an amazing example of bold faith. I have got to try as hard as I can to be like Abraham. That would be the end of the story. But the story does not end there. Because whilst Abraham shows all this bold faith in the first half of the chapter, when we get to the second half of the chapter, we see actually all sorts of blatant failing. Just look how it continues. Just pick up the story. Would you go to verse 10, page 13, we're on, and let's just see how the rest of the chapter goes Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. So far, so great. Perhaps he's been reading the five love languages, you know, words of affirmation, what a beautiful woman you are. He's doing it all well. Then it goes pear-shaped. Look at how it continues. He says, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Now that's not really one of the five love languages, is it? It's not really, you know, you know uh, putting your wife in serious danger because you're a bit of a wuss, that is not one of the five love languages. But that's what he does. 
And sure enough, what happens? Pharaoh does indeed spot that she's very good looking. He invites her into the palace. Uh, She becomes one of his wives. And just imagine how is Sarah feeling at that point? She's basically being pimped out to the Pharaoh because of her husband's lies. I mean, it's, it's just despicable. Now, eventually, the, the deception gets found out. And instead of responding to God's command to go at the start of the chapter, Abraham finds himself having to respond to Pharaoh's command to go at the end of the chapter. Just look on to verse 18, just over the page. Verse 18. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Take her and go. This this man who has shown such bold faith by the end of the chapter, he has blatantly failed. Now why? Why has he failed? Well, because rather than looking up to God and his word and obeying it, he's instead of looking up, he's looking in. He's looking in, he's taking matters into his own hands, he's doing what he wants, what he thinks is best for himself. And rather than looking forwards to God and trusting God and trusting his promises, instead of looking forwards, he's just looking around at his circumstances, he's just doing what he seems to think is most expedient to improve his life in the here and now. And I don't know about you, but if I'm totally honest, I'm afraid that is all too familiar to me. Too often I am looking in rather than looking up. Too often I'm looking around rather than looking forwards. Let me just try and sort of make this really clear by giving us three things that I think Abraham does to retreat from bold faith in this passage. Let's see if any of these apply to you. Here's the first one. First thing he does, he tells a half-truth to save his own skin. Sarah's my sister, he said. It actually was half true, because when you read on to Genesis 20, Sarah, his wife, was probably also his half-sister. So Abraham, if you like, he could rationalize his statement, but behind it was an intention to deceive for his own benefit. Telling a half-truth to save your own skin. Have you done that? I have. Or how about this one? Number two, focusing on material well-being above spiritual well-being. You see, down in Egypt, Abraham was treated so well. If you look in verse 16, he acquires sheep and cattle and donkeys and servants and camels. He's materially prosperous, but he's spiritually shriveling. Has that ever been you? Again, it has been me. Things are going well, success in all sorts of forms, but Jesus has just disappeared off the agenda. And here's the kicker with Abraham. Just look at when Abraham, when he calls on the Lord. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 12, look at it. In verse 7, he's calling on the Lord. He's building an altar to the Lord. All great. If you look at the end of verse 8, again, he builds another altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. Still all great. His relationship with the Lord, it's close. It's so sweet. But then what happens? He looks in, he looks around, he heads off down to Egypt. Oh dear. You see, there's no mention of God guiding him to go down to Egypt, away from Canaan where God has called him to stay. There's no mention of him whilst he's in Egypt calling on the Lord. There is nothing at all in the whole time in Egypt about Abraham and God's relationship. There's nothing until the start of chapter 13 after he's been rebuked by a a pagan pharaoh. He's headed back into Canaan with his tail between his legs. Then eventually, chapter 13, verse 4, again we read, he called on the name of the Lord. But whilst he is in Egypt, nothing. No mention of his relationship to God at all. 
And so I want to ask, is this challenge, is this way of retreating from bold faith, is this you at the moment? Abraham in Egypt, sliding nicely forwards materially, but sliding dangerously backwards spiritually. Or how about this one? Here's the third one. Settling for spiritual mediocrity because of a relationship. See, it's interesting. When you look back to the end of chapter 11, it says in verse 31, it says, they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans, where he did live, to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So Abraham had this call. He had this call from God to leave Ur and to go to Canaan, the promised land. But then we're told Abraham and his family, they settle in Haran, which was halfway. So it's a bit like they were in London. They were told to go to Scotland and they settled in Birmingham. Okay, that's what it's like. Well, why did they do that? And the reason why they did it, it seems to be that the reason they only went halfway to Canaan was because of Abraham's dad. Because of his dad, Terah. And it wasn't until his dad died that actually Abraham responded totally obediently to God and went to where God had called him. Now again, for some of us here tonight, there may be someone. It may be our dad, like it was for Abraham. Maybe another family member. Maybe someone that is a romantic influence on us, our boyfriend or girlfriend. It may be a close friend. It may be someone who is holding us back from God's call to live a life of bold faith. You see, there can be no settling in spirit, the spiritual mediocrity of Haran if God has called us to Canaan. And so I ask, have you let the call of someone else take first place in your life rather than God? Have you ever done that? Are you doing it now? Certainly been times in my life when I have. And you see, the root of all these three things, the root of them, it's when we live life looking in, letting ourselves decide what is right and wrong, rather than looking up to God and his word and letting his word be our guide. It's when we live life looking around at our circumstances, we make decisions based on the here and now and how we can improve our lot in life right now rather than looking forwards and trusting God and his promises to be fulfilled in God's timing. The other day I was, um, I was listening to a podcast um, where Mark Sayers, who's the senior pastor of Red Church in Melbourne, he was speaking, and he was speaking in essence about the challenges to bold faith. And actually, as he was speaking, he was speaking a lot about William Wilberforce and this church. Just think back in time for a moment. Just think back to Wilberforce 200-odd years ago. The biggest challenge back then to bold faith would have been people who went to church religiously, who would have been part of a sort of moral middle class, who would have liked to have had tea with the rector, who would have liked to get involved with the church fate or whatever it might be. Lots of externals, but no real internal bold faith. And of course, that kind of thing does still exist today. But Mark says, says this, he says, today there's a far more prevalent way that people retreat from bold faith, and it's this. He says, we live in a consumer age. We live in a consumer age, and the retreat from a bold faith, it is people who are in church, but because we live in a consumer age, people who are in church, but who are living out a consumer mindset, but we just put a sort of Christian veneer over the top of our consumer mindset. And so people will pick and choose. 
as consumers. We'll just pick and choose which bits of the Christian faith we want to have and which bits we want to reject. We'll just pick and choose. We'll make the decisions. I'll have Jesus as Lord in this area of my life, but not in this bit or this bit or this bit. He says that's the most common way to retreat from a bold faith today. And if I'm honest, it was this sense of pick and choose that was the motivation for me in writing one of the books that I've written called 100% Christianity. That this idea that there is this call on us to have Jesus Christ as Lord over everything, as Lord over our, all our life, 100%. Now, what did William Wilberforce do? What did he do to counteract this problem in his day? How did he work for a renewal of bold faith in this country, one that resulted in the abolition of the slave trade and much, much more? What did he do? Well, to begin with, he wrote a book, one actually far more successful than mine, and it was a book not called 100% Christianity, but called Real Christianity. And his book was encouraging personal renewal. He said to encourage corporate renewal in this land, Wilberforce said to encourage that corporate renewal, it needs to begin with personal renewal. It needs to begin with personal renewal for himself and the people of HTC. And so, you know, if we long for the same today, if we long for a renewal and a revival in this country today, if we long for a growth of God's kingdom in South London, if we long for that decline in church attendance to be reversed, that longing has got to start with us, with you and me, a personal renewal of bold faith in us. That's what it's got to start with. And if you or I want personal renewal, If you or I want to be those people who we're more and more people of bold faith, then we would do a lot worse than to ask God to help us be those who look up and obey God and his word, all of it, 100% of it, even when it's unpopular. And we would do a lot worse than to ask God to help us be those who look forwards and trust God and his promises above all, God's promise for eternity, even if that means life is a challenge and is tough now. You see, it is helpful for us to see that there is this spectrum. There's this spectrum that all of us are on between bold faith and blatant failing. It's helpful for us to sort of see that spectrum and just to do a bit, of, a bit of self-analysis on ourselves and say, where am I at the moment? Where am I on this spectrum between blatant failing and bold faith? It's really helpful for us to do that and, to say, and then to pray, God, please, by your spirit, would you renew me personally? Would you renew me more and more so that I'm moving down to this end of the spectrum so I'm more and more a person of bold faith? I think that's really helpful for us to do. But, you know, as I close this sermon, actually, I don't want to focus on bold faith or on blatant failing. I don't want to focus on either of those things as I, as I close, because both of them, if we just focus on those things, we're actually we're focusing too much on ourselves. So rather than bold faith or blatant failing, as I close, I just want to focus on beautiful faithfulness. Beautiful faithfulness. The faithfulness of God. God faithful to his promises. You see, amongst us here, there will be times for all of us 
when it looks to you as if God is not providing for you as you look around at your circumstances. So it must have been for Abraham as that famine just sucked them dry of all the food. Maybe you here, you have failed God. You've not behaved or reacted with bold faith in the face of certain pressures. So it was with Abraham. We can feel helpless. We suffer, we, we grow impatient, we fail. So it was with Abraham. But the point is this, we fail, but God, he does not fail us. If our faith is in Jesus, God will not let us go. Your faith, it will not be bold just by you trying as hard as you can to work up lots of faith inside of you. Rather, your faith will be bold when the object of your faith is Jesus. Jesus, a God who is totally, beautifully faithful to you. Because when you or I muck up, as we will, Jesus will not withdraw his spirit from us. He will not remove our salvation. He will not throw us out of the family because he is faithful. I love the line. There's a line in that chapter, Hebrews 11, the next verse, where it talks about Abraham and Sarah. And it says this, it says, they considered God faithful who had made the promise. They considered him faithful who had made the promise. Our God, he is totally, beautifully faithful. He is totally, beautifully faithful wherever you currently are on that spectrum between bold faith and blatant failing. He is totally, beautifully faithful. And his promise, his promise of God's people in God's place, experiencing God's blessing, it will be fulfilled in its entirety in the new heaven and the new earth. And HTC, each one of you here, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, that future... you will be part of it.